What I have tried to accomplish so far is to preach two and a half messages to the women on the most important first step of maximizing marriages, and that is for women to realize that their role ordained by God is to be a submissive helper for their husbands. The last two and a half messages, including this evening, will be to finish the second most important thing for marriages, and that is that husbands realize their role as the loving ruler in marriages. Now, there is a priority. The submission of the wife comes before the love of the husband. First of all, by emphasis in the Word of God, by the nature of the institution, by whom Paul addresses first, and by this fact, a marriage still exists whether the husband loves or does not love. A marriage does not exist when a woman does not submit. The institution has broken down when the woman does not submit. Now, when the man doesn't love, he is sinning against his God, and the relationship is not what it should be. But when a woman does not submit, there is no relationship because the relationship by nature is voluntary. That's why the order that I've used. A husband must first be a ruler and a leader. I've emphasized that the last message and a half before this evening. The most important thing to make our marriages everything God ever expected and designed them to be is for the husband to be the leader in the home. When it comes to the training of the children, when it comes to the earning of the bread for the table, when it comes to the spiritual leadership in the home, when it comes to the efforts applied toward the church of Jesus Christ, those efforts should come from the husband, not from the wife. She should be helping him, aiding him, abetting him, supporting him, but he should be the leader. You know what a blessing that is to women when their husbands will be the leaders and do those things for them and take the role and position of responsibility. Second, the husband must love and provide for his wife. He is not simply to rule, but he is also to love, as we taught last Sunday and as I'll finish this evening. Wisdom, when it's in a position of authority, knows the importance of proper compromise. Wisdom knows when to give and when to listen to those under its authority. It is a fool in a position of leadership that thinks he can run roughshod over those under his authority. He will lose them by doing so. It requires wisdom to know when to give, when to listen, when to show some consideration, when to give, when to sacrifice a little in order to gain more. Rehoboam being the great example of the fool who listened to the advice of young men and lost his kingdom when the old man gave him the great wisdom that if he would have given just a little, they would have served him forever. And men, your wives will serve you forever if you'll love them and learn to compromise and give a little. Now look at Ephesians chapter 5 again. Ephesians chapter 5. And let us see what the Apostle Paul says when he addresses husbands. When Paul tells the Ephesian church, husbands, what is the first imperative verb that we run into? With the wives, it was easy. Submit. In Colossians chapter 3, it was the same. Submit. With the husbands, what is it? Rule? Dominate? 
intimidate, crush? Husbands, love your wives. Paul was not writing to 20th century churches. Paul was writing to a generation that understood better the nature of the men and women than we do today. They knew more about ruling in the home than we do today. They understood the position of men in society like we don't for the most part as a nation today. Therefore, you won't find much about ruling here in Ephesians 5, and you won't find it in Colossians 3. You find love being emphasized by the apostle. Husbands, love your wives. If we turn over to the corresponding epistle of Colossians in the third chapter, the 19th verse, we read the same words. Husbands, love your wives. It's a command of the apostle to you men. Paul is addressing you men. Your duty towards your wives is to love them. Well, what does that vague word mean? And it is a vague word today. Love in the Bible is a giving commitment of one party to another to give things for their benefit and welfare. Remember, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave. Love is giving towards your wife. If you never give, if you never go through the mental process, I want to do that. I'll give on this one for her benefit. You haven't loved your wife yet. If you haven't taken some of your money that you've been tallying up in your mind to buy something for yourself and use it to buy something for her, you haven't given yet. If you have plenty of diversions in your life, but you seldom give her a diversion from her 24-hour a day, eight days a week job, you haven't loved her yet because love is giving. Love is not a feeling and love is not getting. Just because you say sweet things to her when you need something from her is not loving her. Now that the world thinks of it that way. You know, I love you is an expression to get something from a person. Love in America today is getting. I love that person. Why? Because that person tells me I'm great, that person gives to me, that person serves me. It's all a love for getting for oneself. In the Bible, love is a sacrificial giving for another's welfare. Husbands are to treat their wives that way. God knows women put themselves at risk when they marry men. You chuckle, but it is, it's not a joke. Listen, you men, how would you like to give up your name, your everything, and go serve another human being daily, day in, day out, intimate ways, menial ways. It is a tough demand placed on them by Almighty God. Therefore, God has commanded husbands love your wives because of that giving that they make when they give themselves to their husbands. I want to repeat more than I already have something from last Sunday evening, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Would you turn there again? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul said, husbands, love your wives. He said it twice. He repeated it. What does it mean to love? 
Well, we ought to take the same apostle and find out how he defines the word love, and there's no better word defined more expressly than the word love in the four verses, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. And I ask you men, as we read these four verses, do you do these 15 things toward your wives? This is Paul's definition of how a good husband treats his wife. Because husbands are to love, and here's the definition of love, this is how a marriage is to work. This, this is not how we are to love God. When was the last time you had to suffer long with God? When was the last time you had to think no evil or bear all things? I mean, the direct application is here to other human beings with their weaknesses. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13, love suffers long. Do you tolerate much out of your wife and still love her? Do you still give to her the things that she needs for her welfare, even though she lets you down, and that often, and that perpetually? Love suffers long. Are you able to tolerate much and still love your wife? I don't have time to go into all the verses that I have behind all of these 15 phrases, but we've been over all that before. You know, does the glory of a man to pass over a transgression? Is it your glory to pass over a transgression from your wife? Or because she has your last name, you don't feel there's any allowance for any transgressions on her part. She's defiling your family name, and therefore you ought to come crashing down on her. Men, let's be honest. There is some problem. I cannot exactly define why it occurs, although we have some good reasons, why men are less merciful on their own wives and children than they are on other women and other children. There's several reasons. One reason is, and I hope the women hear this, you women can hurt your husband in a way no other woman ever can. You can hurt your husband so fast and so deeply without ever knowing it and another woman can't do that. She is not his wife. Some of you women know that if another woman in the congregation asked your husband to do something for her, he'd get it done sooner for her than he would for you. There's a reason for that. That other woman has never hurt. You hurt your husband like you may have. That's a reason. Then there's the degree of familiarity. Because we all, when we're married, we know about each other's weaknesses, personal habits, and other little irritating idiosyncrasies about them that reduces respect many times. But nonetheless, even though they are family now, men, do you take it considered a glory to pass over a transgression? Two, love is kind. It sees your wife in a gentle, sympathetic, benevolent way. Love is kind. Do you consider benevolently and carefully your wife and do nice things toward her? Do you initiate acts of kindness toward her? Are you gentle or are you forward? Are you demanding or are you considerate? Love is kind. Love does not envy. Number three, it doesn't resent others because of advantage. Your wife may be smarter than you are. Your wife may come from a better family than you came from. Your wife may have an employment advantage. 
so, thank God for it. You've got a good wife. Love doesn't envy a woman for something that she is or does. It's not going to envy the wife just because something good happens to her and may not happen to you. Love does not vaunt itself. It seeks to emphasize others. It seeks to emphasize others. You know, there's a tendency on the part of men to make everything, and I'll, I'll protect, don't worry, but there is a tendency for men to make the marriage all about them. Love, however, does not seek to vaunt itself. It seeks to emphasize the object of that love. Do you make your wife an important part of your marriage, or is she only a tag-along. Husbands, love your wives. You cannot vaunt yourself all the time. Yes, marriage was made for you. However, husbands, love your wives. We've got to keep balance. Do you vaunt yourself all the time? Is it always what you've done? And there is nothing said about what she's done or what she is thinking on some particular subject. Love is not puffed up. Love doesn't get all cocky and proud about what you've accomplished and it's always talking about itself. Love is not puffed up. Love is able to humble itself and not think too highly of oneself, but to get down and commiserate with one's wife. Love does not behave itself unseemly. It uses good behavior. Are you tactful and courteous with your wife? And I can hear half of you men saying, but she's my wife. I mean, do I need to be tactful and courteous? Sometime, not in a sermon, I'll tell you how I talked to my daughter Rachel about men getting her used to what it's like to be married to a man because she's so grossed out by her four brothers and all their gross habits. And I tell her what it's going to be like when she marries that knight in white shining armor, and I'll stop there. <laughs> about what he, how soon she's going to realize he's just like her brothers. But all lightness aside, love doesn't behave itself unseemly. As men, we should show some limitation on our grosser side to honor our wives. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says love does not behave itself unseemly. And maybe your wife isn't in love yet with snails and puppy dog tails. And so you should make a little bit of an adjustment in the way you do certain things in the privacy of your home. Love seeks not her own. It sacrifices itself. This comes right back to the definition of love. Love gives. Love gives. It seeks not its own. Love is out seeking in addition. Now, this is, an, this is a point I'm going to make tonight heavily. There is a limit to how much a husband is to give in his love toward his wife, or else we, don't, we, we have a marriage that doesn't make any sense. However, there is a point the husband is to give and to seek the welfare of his wife. And I ask you men, when was the last time you spent a good solid half hour considering 
what your wife needed to be a better woman. I mean, you sat down and carefully thought about what it take, what would it, what it would take to make your wife a better woman. Whether it's education. Listen, this is just coming off the top of my head, so don't. I don't want to hear about anybody enrolling tomorrow. Whether it's education at Greenville Tech to give her something to stimulate her mind. Listen, I'd like to see you after six months of changing diapers filled with doo-doo and see how stagnant your mind is. Give her, when was the last time you thought about your wife to seek her welfare? Doesn't take me six months, it takes me about six minutes. I'm glad we have a daughter that's able to do it. <laughs> Love seeks not her own. Love seeks out the welfare of one's wife. This is a definition of love. Do you sit down and carefully think, what would make my wife a better woman? And think about it and land on something profitable for her and then make the necessary investment for it to happen. It might be financial. It might be a time-wise. It might be you keeping the kids at night while she goes to Greenville Tech. Whatever it might be, do you do that for your wife? If you've never done it, if, if what I'm saying to you is rather foreign, then you haven't loved your wife as the Bible defines love. Love is not easily provoked. It tolerates a lot before acting. Are you able to put up with some pouting? And I hear the man say, yes, but you've already preached she's not supposed to pout. And remember when I preached to the woman, I said, even if he doesn't love you, you still submit to him. What she does is rather irrelevant at this moment, whether you love her or not, when it comes to not being easily provoked. Not being easily provoked assumes by definition she's doing something to provoke you. That's we're imperfect human beings. How quickly do you fly off the handle at your wife when she does something to provoke you? Is there some mercy and patience and long-suffering in your relationship? Or is it instant justice? Love is not easily provoked. Thank God he's not, God is not easily provoked with us men. Love thinks no evil. It rejects suspicion and believes the best. Remember that verse over in 1 Timothy chapter 6 about evil surmisers? When your wife has, when you see circumstances, your wife comes home late, she didn't get what she was supposed to, do you automatically conclude the worst? When you see a dent on the car, you automatically come in the house in a rage about her denting the car. Because obviously you couldn't have done it. It had to be her. Love thinketh no evil. Love is as fair as it can be. It does not evil, evilly surmise. Love rejoices in the truth. It desires truth as the goal. True love will never rejoice with one's wife when you're engaged in wickedness. Love will never rejoice when your wife falls and makes a mistake. It will mourn with her. It will not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. It grieves over sin. Love bears all things. It desires to help and to support. You help and support your wife in all things. Love believes all things. And it always assumes the best construction on what your wife says or does. Love hopes all things. Even when your wife says something and you still can't believe it, then hope it. 
cover for her. Love covers as far as it is able and believes and hopes that there were good intentions behind what she did. I'll tell you men right now, unless you're rather slow and you married a brilliant woman, she's going to let you down repeatedly. What are you going to do about it is the whole issue. Are you going to bear, believe, and hope that she was doing the best she could? Now, I'm going to get to a verse in a minute that will take up where I'm leaving off right here. And are you going to endure it? These are 15 descriptions. You men ought to look at these. Believe me, we will be. But you men ought to look at these 15 descriptions and remind yourself this is how the Apostle Paul defines love. Do I practice these 15 things toward my wife? In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul mentioned two other verbs we looked at last Sunday evening. And I full well know that I'm repeating myself. I full well know that you need it. These verbs and their definitions and this emphasis is what we all need to preach it one Sunday and to let you feel convicted to some degree on one Sunday and to go home and forget about it is not nearly as effective as knowing you're going to get it again when you come back a week later. It is a reminder, and it gives me about two weeks to deal with you men. I had about two weeks with the women to give them a 15-day period in which to think about what was coming again on Sunday and to see if they'd be doing it. There is some method to my madness. And the Apostle Paul repeated himself, I can. But I want you to focus on the words nourish and cherish, and they're found in verse 29, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. And we are just told in verse 28 that men ought to love their wives as their own bodies, and how do men love their bodies? They nourish and they cherish them. What does the word nourish mean? It means to supply with whatever is necessary to promote or maintain the growth of something. We make sure our bodies, men, get all they need to maximize their growth. Can you remember being a teenage boy and all the different diets you went on and gain weight programs and weightlifting and Charles Atlas advertisements we cut out of the back of magazines and dreamed about? Because we wanted to be, we wanted to nourish our bodies. We were going to provide for them everything they needed to promote and maintain their growth. I showed you Ruth 4.15 where that word is used by some women regarding Naomi. They rejoiced that Ruth had had a son for Boaz and that Naomi would now have a grandson that would be able to nourish her in her old age. Now, how do you nourish an old widow woman? You provide all she needs for her comfort in her old age. What she is unable to provide for herself, you provide it for her. That's how you take care of someone that's old. You make life easy for them. You provide shelter, clothing, food, some entertainment, some diversion, protection for them. And guess what? Paul tells husbands, nourish your wives. I want to give you another reference, though. Oh, we, I did. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 5. That's where Nebuchadnezzar nourished the young men, Daniel included, that he took from Jerusalem. Remember that nourishment in Daniel chapter 1 was King Nebuchadnezzar giving the young men 
what kind of food? His portion, his meat, his drink. Do you give your wife some of these things that stimulate and excite and please you? Or do you relegate her to some lower level of existence by not giving her from your table? Nourishment is giving the best that you are able. Does your wife have adequate time? These are things I mentioned last Sunday evening. Money, rest, recreation, tools, diversion, clothing, stimulation. And I'm talking about intellectual stimulation. And education, to be all that God intended her to be. Could you make her a better woman by investing some nourishment in her? Or is she suffering from malnutrition? You know, we have some wives in this congregation that are quite gifted mentally. There's hardly a greater burden for a person to bear than to be gifted mentally and to never have it exercised. You will find if you ever read Proverbs chapter 31, and I hope to God you men will, and I will try to help you do so, that the woman in Proverbs 31 was very stimulated intellectually. She was out considering real estate, a field, and buying it, and of her own hand, planting a vineyard there. Now, that's, quite, that's commercial real estate, wouldn't you say? That's not residential, would it be? You're planting a that's income-producing property. That's commercial real estate. When was the last time you thought of letting your wife get a license in commercial real estate? You say she'd need some education for it. You're getting the message. You understand the burden when God's given someone a mind and they can't use it? You men love to use your minds and your bodies to accomplish things in the job. Do they ever get a similar opportunity? I hope all of you men hear me. Cherish. What does the word cherish mean? Well, the word cherish, according to the dictionary, means to hold dear, treat with tenderness and affection, to make much of something. I mean to, hold, to consider it as a dear, prized possession and to make a big deal over it, to treat it with affection and tenderness. Look at 1 Kings chapter 1. Let me raise a Bible illustration of, from the Old Testament for the word cherish. 1 Kings chapter 1. We don't use these words anymore, so we got to look in the Word of God for the, where God himself has defined them for us. 1 Kings 1, verse 1. You men will really enjoy this. It's going to turn the barrels back on you. Now King David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he got no heat. Wherefore his servant said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord the king a young virgin, and let her stand before the king, and let her cherish him, and let her lie in thy bosom, that my lord the king may get heat. And they sought for a fair damsel throughout all the coasts of Israel, and found Abishag a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the damsel was very fair, and cherished the king, and ministered to him. But the king knew her not. Now this is important. Cherishing here is not a sexual relationship. Cherishing here is doing everything short of it serving him in every way, tenderly taking care of this poor old man whose circulation is so pitiful that he can't keep warm. I mean, she was his personal chamberlain taking care of every need he had 
and cherishing him, just treating him as affectionately and as tenderly as she could while he spent his final days in this world. Now, what does the Bible say in Ephesians chapter 5? It's easy to get you women, if you can follow my line of reasoning at all. Men, if you would have been King David, what would you have wanted Abishag the Shunammite doing for you? Now, let that list grow in your mind to 20 or 30 entries. And then remember that Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 29 tells us, Husbands, cherish your wives. The Word of God will usually define itself plainly enough for men to get the idea of tender affection and making a big deal over someone. You can imagine that young virgin girl. She worshipped that king. She took care of his every need and whim. And to an extent, her wife, do you esteem your wife highly? Do you treat her tenderly? Do you show her much affection? Do you make a big deal over her? Do you give her the verbal love and reassurance that she needs, and some of that in public? Remember from Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 5, where we read last Sunday, when a man and a woman were married in the Old Testament, the husband was to take a year free from business, free from war, to stay at home and do what? Cheer up his wife. She needed it. Man, if you had to give up your name, your family, your life, your pursuit, your desires, your pleasures, for those of your husband, would you need some cheering up? God knew women needed some cheering up. And so God gave them to God gave that cheering up to them by that commandment in Deuteronomy twenty four and verse five. How much time have you spent, however, cheering up your wives today? We should be doing it often. That's an amazing text. You mean to give up a year in my career? My fast track career? You mean give up a year in my career for my wife? One of the points that will be coming in a future message is that a problem men often have is they fall in love and, a and their job becomes their mistress. And they love their job more than they do their wife. That is the great downfall of men. God knew that and he said, I want you at home one year free from business to cheer up your wife. Women have an opposite problem and is equally great, and that's with their children. Children become the object of their affection, love, and service instead of their husbands. God didn't design either. God designed husbands and wives to, what, to love each other preeminently. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 again. Ephesians chapter 5, loving your wife properly, if you men will do this, is not wasted effort because you are loving yourself. If you will love your wife and make her great, you are loving yourself. Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it to make the church great or to make himself great. To make himself great. Everything God has done is for his own glory and for his own pleasure. We can read it right here in these verses, husbands. Verse 25, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Verses 26 and 27 will give the reason or the purpose for Christ's love, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not 
having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Jesus Christ wanted a perfect source of praise and glory for himself. Therefore, he gave himself to perfect the church as his bride so that he could have a perfect bride that would perfectly love him and give glory to him. Jesus Christ did not die directly because he felt bad for you in your sins. Jesus Christ died for men in order to manifest the glory of the grace of God to all of creation so that angels would desire to look into these things. God's purpose in salvation, brethren, is not so that some won't have to suffer in hell. God's purpose in salvation is for the manifestation of his glory. That's why he left half of them there, because he also gets glory from his wrath and his power. And the minute that point is missed, then we end up with men being burdened with a point about loving their wives they cannot meet. Your purpose in loving your wife is because God commanded it and because it's loving yourself. That's why verse 28 says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. And notice that next explaining sentence of verse 28. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. In marriage, God has so closely brought two together, a man and a woman, that when a man properly loves his wife, and that is sacrificially giving himself for her to make her better, he's loving himself because who's going to reap the results of the better woman? He is. Now, the man who deprives his wife, how intelligent is he? How intelligent is the man who keeps his wife barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen. He's a moron. And you know what? You show me a man like that, and I'll guarantee you a man that goes nowhere. He will go nowhere. It's just like managers. The minute you find a manager that always keeps those under him, the supervisors and employees, hidden away, all the projects they do, he takes the credit for it. He never gives them liberty, diversions, rewards, or promotions. He'll never go far. The manager that goes farthest and fastest is the manager that knows how to build up those working for him because they are going to make him great. And it's a dumb man who doesn't recognize that in marriage. And the Lord's trying to tell you that right here in this 28th verse, the last sentence. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Some of you men, most of you men have heard preaching on the husband loving the wife before. Maybe you've been burdened with a conscience that you didn't know how, how do, you, how do I love her and satisfy Almighty God since the ideal he's given me is Christ's love for the church. Is Christ's love for the church infinite? Yes, in a sense. Is it quite limited in a sense? Yes. Did Christ's love for the church ever raise the church to such a position where Christ grovels before the church? Does Christ's love for the church reverse the roles of Christ in the church, or is Christ still the head of the church? Is the church still for the praise and the honor and glory of Christ, or is Christ for the praise and the honor and glory of the church? 
A husband is not under obligation in the word of God to love his wife beyond or, or farther than recognizing the respective roles they have. And it, it is pitifully ignorant on the part of preachers to simply say, love your wife like Christ loved the church and leave men hanging, that they ought to give themselves like dying on the cross for their wife. Why did Christ die on the cross for his bride? To make her better for him. What happens in a man's mind when it isn't preached and the roles kept distinct? is that the husband does not know where to stop. Well, if I just keep giving and giving and giving and sacrificially giving and loving in the way that you're describing, someone who stops in verse 25, 27, or 28, she'd end up being the husband I'd be the wife. I'd be the one in submission. Every whim she had, every desire she had, I'd be doing it for her. God's never required that of men. God's never required that of masters. God's never required that of fathers to their children. The authority and ruling and leadership must still be maintained, and that comes first. Then love within that realm of authority is what God is talking about. Jesus Christ loved the church within that realm of authority. In heaven, Jesus Christ will not be serving us. We'll be serving Christ. Jesus Christ will not be praising us. We'll be praising Christ. His love for the church did not reverse the roles. His love for the church did not take away his condemnation of evil. He chastens us just as quickly. Why, I read, because of his love, he scourges every son that he receives. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be studying it next Sunday. Verse 29. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are so closely related to Jesus Christ, and it's even a mystery, that by Christ making us perfect, it exalted him throughout eternity as this perfect holy church will praise and, gl and glory in him for his kindness toward them. That's the purpose of redemption. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Why did God the Father choose us in Jesus Christ in verse 4? Why did he predestinate us to the adoption of sons in verse 5. Well, verse 6 will tell us to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. To the praise of the glory of his grace. A husband is to love his wife because God commands it, but there's a reason for that love and Paul includes that along with the commandments. If you love your wife, you're going to be loving yourself. Because as you make your wife greater, as you give for her benefit and welfare, that will return to you by your wife serving you, and she'll be a better woman doing so, so you'll receive greater benefit. Just as Jesus Christ loved the church, that is the limitation. Men are not to be crawling before their wives. You men do not have an obligation to satisfy every one of their whims. In fact, the majority of their whims must go unregarded. That limitation must be maintained or the authority structure breaks down. Masters give to some of their employees. They compromise at points, but they don't say, listen, I'll do the job. You go sit at my desk. There isn't a reversal of roles. Rehoboam was not advised by the old men to give up his kingdom 
and pick some poor, poverty-stricken ignoramus from the common people and stick him on the throne of Israel and start leading a donkey around with a tin cup. Rehoboam was to give on one point. Let's reduce taxes. Let's reduce taxes. Ronald Reagan did it, and did he win the affection of the people? He did. He's a, he was a master at it. George Bush is trying to follow. George Bush, read my lips. There will be no tax increase. We'll see. We'll see on that one. He's trying to follow in his father's footsteps. I doubt if he'll be able to stay there for four years. All that was advised by the old men was lower taxes, not give up the throne, not abolish taxes, keep the taxes coming, maintain your royal court, maintain your 70 wives, maintain your cities and garrisons of soldiers throughout Judea, but reduce taxes, give a break. And man, I hope you get the point I'm trying to give here. You still are to be the leaders in your home, and God has made this a man's world. And I'm not going to back down from that because that's what the Word of God teaches. But he's also given this world to wise men. And wise men will know when and how much to give to build their wives up because as they love their wives, they love themselves. Should a husband pay for child care to let his wife play all day? Listen, if he loved like Christ loved the church, wouldn't he gladly pay for child care so that the children could be taken care of at a nursery and she could run around town all day? Some men do that today. Has God required that? No way. Go look at Proverbs 31 and see a virtuous woman. You try to make your wife into that virtuous woman. Not by oppression, but by giving her the tools and encouragement and instruction she needs to be that kind of a woman. That woman did not eat the bread of slothfulness, nor were her hands idle, in Proverbs chapter 31. Should a husband, every time his wife asks him, cancel his hunting trip to accompany her to a fashion show? It'd be absurd. It'd be absolutely absurd to do that every time. But husbands get a conscience burden when they hear Ephesians 5 taught without limitation. And the limitation is, what ends up serving the marriage. If you give and give to an excess to your wife, you no longer serve the marriage. You're breaking down the very authority structure God ordained where you as a man are the glory of God. And if you subject yourself to the woman, you're no longer the glory of God because God doesn't subject himself to anyone, including the church. He is still the head of it. Should men become house husbands so that a woman can pursue her full-time career? That's giving beyond what Christ expects, what God expects. That's a reversal of roles that God's ordained. That becomes a woman's world. God hasn't required that of you men. Should every man sell his Fleetwood because she likes little cars? If you want to sell your Fleetwood, because your wife likes little cars, fine, but God hasn't put you under that obligation. If you have a desire for Fleetwoods, it is her obligation to like Fleetwoods. It isn't your obligation to give up Fleetwoods, unless that, one, that is an area you want to give in. There's got to be a balance. 
Paul has just told wives in verse 22 that they ought to submit themselves to their husbands in everything. If wives are to be submitting in everything and husbands are to be giving in everything, who really ends up submitting? <laughs> what do you have? Two people. Well, I'll give. No, I'll give. You can have it your way. No, you have it your way. I want to love you like Christ loved the church. Well, I want to submit. Well, i got to love you. Listen, and it breaks down, and people's minds get confused. You may never have identified the confusion before. As I was studying over the last several weeks, the confusion kept mounting and mounting and mounting. How could I love my wife as Christ loved the church? I mean, that's the, most, that's the greatest sacrifice God ever gave. I said, was it really? Yes, it was, the death of Jesus Christ, but then Jesus Christ was exalted at the right hand of God and made the head over the church, and he's never going to relinquish that position, and he is not groveling, crawling, or in subjection to the church. And I'm not going to preach Ephesians 5.25 in a way that leaves men with their conscience calling on them to do anything like that. Now, an intelligent woman whose perceptive is going to have this thought running through her mind, what he's telling my husband is, throw her a bone once in a while so she'll serve you better. I'm not going to ask you women to raise your hand. <laughs> throw her a bone so she'll feel better about you being her ruler. We laugh. If you want to use those corrupt words, then go ahead and use them. But the way the Bible defines that bone is what makes all the difference in the world. The Bible defines that bone as love, nourish, and cherish. And that is not a slight bone. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. What's the bottom line then from Ephesians 5? The bottom line is love your wives, nourish and cherish them in the way that I've described using the examples and Bible definitions that I have, as far as you are able and still maintain, it is a man's world, and you are the leader and the primary reason for the marriage institution. But you make that wife everything that she possibly can be because, in effect, it is loving yourself. And you practice the kind of nourishment and cherishing that you do towards your own bodies that you men would have liked Abishag performing towards you, and I do not mean sexually, I'm, because the Bible makes that very clear that wasn't involved, but she waited on him hand and foot, and you do that kind of cherishing, now that's quite a bone, as far as you are able and yet to maintain the institution as God ordained it. Remember this, you are the glory of God. The woman is not. The woman is not the glory of God. You are the glory of God. Don't crawl. To your wives and that is not taking back what I've preached but that's what we have a nation filled with today the man is the glory of God God crawls to no one including his church but on the other hand God loves his church and cherishes it and nourishes it and we do our bodies and that's how we are commanded to treat our wives 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, the first six verses dealt with the wives. Peter addressed wives, verse 1, likewise ye wives. Then in verse 7, likewise ye husbands. Dwell with them according to knowledge. 
Men, your lives with your wives must be based on knowledge. Living with your wife is not something that men know how to do automatically. Primitive natives, the aborigines, might think that is true. But living with a woman is not something you do automatically. It's something you have to do with knowledge. Live with your wife according to knowledge. What is the bottom line of that statement? Don't be stupid about women. Men and women are not the same. Therefore, you are to dwell with them, give, giving recognition to that fact. Many times we as men treat our wives like other men. They are not other men. That is the purpose for 1 Peter 3, 7 being in the Word of God. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. God made men and women differently. Women don't act or think the same way we do. You need to take recognition of that fact. God made men for ruling. Now, these are things we can learn from the Word of God. God made the man to be a ruler and a doer. I mean, he was put in the Garden of Eden to dress that garden. He was to rule over the woman. He was to rule over the animal creation. The man is a creature that finds his motivation and happiness, and success, and fulfillment in accomplishment, action, purpose. The woman is a different kind of a creature. The woman was made for submissive help. While the man's out there leading the charge, trying to accomplish big things, doing. The woman is behind him, supporting him, trying to figure out what he wants, helping him out whenever she can. The man gets his fulfillment from accomplishment. You show me a man that's got a promotion on the job or has earned a big pay increase over a given year and you'll find a happy man because that's how a man is gratified. Go read Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 9. You'll find it there. How does a woman find gratification? She isn't out leading the charge. She isn't ruling over anything but her children and that only as a governor commissioned by the father. Where does a woman, and how does a woman find her fulfillment in life? By the verbal praise and recognition of the man she serves. Men, stop for a minute. How else is your wife going to measure her fulfillment? Is she going to keep a calendar in the nursery where she checks off diaper 3,618? How fulfilling is that? You say, well, she ought to be fulfilled with that. That's quite an account. How does a woman find fulfillment? She gives up her desires for another man. She serves him. She submits to him. How is she fulfilled as a human being, as the woman that God created, fulfilling her purpose that God intended for her? How does she feel successful? How does she feel like she's doing her job? How is she rewarded? She isn't rewarded like you men are. And yet you men and I, have so many times come home and we show our wife, our wives. You know how I mean that. I'm talking about the congregation collectively. I've only got one. We show our wife the promotion we received in the job. We show her the increase. We show her some other thing we have accomplished. And we think, that ought to be reward for her. She's married to me. Don't tell me you haven't done that. 
we come home, we want to rejoice with our wives, and that's scriptural. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, 2 are better than one because they're a reward for one's labor. And coming home and showing my wife what I've been able to accomplish in my life is probably the most gratifying part of doing it, is to share that with my wife. Now, I can kid myself all day long that she finds her fulfillment in me coming home telling her that I'm great. But I'm kidding myself. How does a woman find fulfillment? With you stopping and taking the time to reward her and to praise her, verbal reassurance from the man she's serving that she is doing a great job and you are proud of her and happy with her service. And I'm glad that all of you men have been doing that so well that we can leave this verse. And I speak as a fool. That is a great difference. When the Bible says husbands dwell with them according to knowledge. What is that? I mean, we read these words and we never stop and think about them. Know the difference between men and women and realize your wife has nothing. To motive, and things don't motivate her like they do you in the sense of accomplishment. She's never going to have the opportunity for accomplishment like you do, just the same as you do. She needs it from verbal praise and reward from you, the one she's serving. Do you know, and I'm emphasizing the word know, K-N-O-W, do you know the value of verbal reassurance for your wife to realize fulfillment? How often do you tell your wife she's a good wife? In any terms that you want to use. How often do you do that? On the job? I mean, you can read today, the one-minute manager. you got to go in and tell them something good. Managers know how to do that with their employees to keep them happy. Even men love the praise of the men they're serving when they're in a position of service. Our wives are in that position. They've forsaken all for us. Do we give them their necessary fulfillment through the praise of the man they're serving? It's been put this way. Men are creatures designed for accomplishing and doing things, exploits, in front of women. Men find their greatest satisfaction in life in doing something big in front of women. Any man in here honest will nod his head, but some of you don't want to let your wives know that. Women find their greatest satisfaction with verbal praise from men, especially their husbands, the one they've given themselves to. Do you know the value of verbal reassurance for your wife? Do you know the value of emotional comfort for her to feel loved and secure? That woman's left her family. She's left her father. She's left her mother. She's left her name. She's become yours. You hold her future in your hand. You can be an oppressive man. And according to Ecclesiastes 4.1, oppressor, where there is no comfort and there is no power. That's a risky situation. She's given up all. And if she's a godly woman, you know what? It's greater. That fear is greater because she knows she cannot just walk out the door. Now, with the women of this world, there's no fear. <laughs> you don't treat me right. <laughs> I won't be around long. But our wives have that second burden, and that is of God's covenant. They can't walk out, and they've given themselves to us. 
What kind of emotional comfort do we give them that they are secure? Do we let them know they are wanted, appreciated, protected, and that we will do everything we can to ensure that safety for them? Do you realize they have emotional needs, that they are in a position of insecurity unless you make it a very secure situation for them? Do you know the value of verbal intimacy for her to be truly satisfied physically? Listen, the physical part of the relationship of marriage isn't nearly as important, even for the physical part of marriage, without the verbal reassurance your wife needs. Do you know her temperamental makeup and show her some mercy accordingly? Do you know that? Remember, Peter said, dwell with them according to knowledge. Do you know her daily responsibilities? Have you ever stayed home and just watched and seen, measured what she has to do every day? Do you know her daily responsibilities, her tribulations, her problems, her troubles? Do you know those things? God knows them about you, and you're thankful he does. Do you know them about her? Peter tells husbands, know them about your wives. Do you know what your wife does in a given day? Do you know that her day doesn't end on Friday? Her week doesn't end on Friday evening. Do you know that? Do you dwell with them according to that knowledge? Is the way you live with them based on that knowledge? Oh, the Bible tells us the Lord knoweth us. He remembereth our frame that we are dust, and he has pity upon us. The Lord pitieth them that are his. Thank God that he knows us. Men, do you know your wives? This verse goes on to say that we are to give honor unto the wife. See, men love to read 1 Peter 3, 7 just to get out of a weaker vessel. But first of all, it says dwell with them according to knowledge. Second of all, it says give honor. Give honor unto your wife. That the honor in this passage is a degree of respect and consideration. Honor the king. Respect and consideration for her position. That doesn't mean you get down and crawl. But you honor her as your wife. When was the last time you honored her? You had some celebration, some verbal expression of you honoring her for the way she serves you and what she's given up to follow you and to be your wife. Give them honor. Give honor unto the wife. Why? Because she's a weaker vessel? and because she's an heir together with you of the grace of life. There are two reasons. Number one, she is a weaker vessel, and you can take advantage of her easily. She's weaker. Conceive, beareth all things, love endureth all things. And she's an heir together with you of the grace of life. When it comes to eternal salvation, woman in Jesus Christ, male, because of that, give her honor. Don't put her down in any spiritual way. If you forget this rule that's in 1 Peter 3, 7, you will probably violate Colossians 3, 19, where it says, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. If you don't remember they're the weaker vessel, if you don't know the differences that women have, if you don't know her temperament, if you don't know the duties she has every day, if you don't remember that she's an heir together with you of the grace of life, you'll most likely be bitter toward her. It's very easy for husbands to be bitter toward their wives or Paul wouldn't have warned against it. Don't be bitter toward your wives. She is a weaker vessel. 
She's also an heir of the grace of life and God commanded you to love her and five of the 15 expressions at least in 1 Corinthians 13 have to do with putting up with her shortcomings. Her failures to measure up, any, any signs that you see of short-term quitting on her part may not and probably are not in this congregation rebellion. They're probably fatigued and you have pushed her to the breaking point. She does have one, and guess what? She'll reach it sooner than you would. So don't start throwing things at her like, well, I wouldn't have done that. That's just what God is saying in 1 Peter 3, 7. That is not the way to treat your wife. He knows you might have done it. He made her the weaker vessel. How many times does God say to you, well, I wouldn't have done that? He doesn't say that to us. He takes recognition of our weakness and bears along with us. And boy, is he merciful. And I'm thankful he is. Choleric husbands, you are most likely too demanding, prone to anger, and emotionally insensitive. Any man in here that's part choleric, you're probably too demanding. You expect too much out of her. You're prone to anger. You get angered, angry too quickly. You fly off the handle too quickly. You're sensitive. You're brutes. We're brutes. We don't have emotional sensitivity. Sometimes. And we need to show emotional sensitivity toward a woman that's dwelling with them according to knowledge. Choleric men, think of those things. Melancholy husbands, if you have all melancholy or part melancholy, hear me, you are probably too critical, too negative, and too many wild mood swings. Listen, the poor woman cannot... The poor woman cannot follow you when you're going up and down like you're on a roller coaster. Who wants a leader like that? Some guy who's the epitome of ecstasy and euphoria and excitement and enthusiasm one day, and the next day he's a sulking baby in the corner, corner needing a mommy. The next day, I said. Now, once a month is okay. But not the next day. Melancholies are too critical. You know, she can't do anything right. Everything has to be perfect the way she squeezes. Listen, I've heard in this church of examples where the toilet paper had better come off the roll the proper way. I have heard in this church where some husbands have gone to the pump for toothpaste because they are sick of seeing their wives squeeze it in the middle. Listen, a melancholy husband can get upset at the least thing. If he looks in the cupboard and the jars are not lined up in a perfect line with all the labels sticking out straight, he can get upset. Melancholies are too critical, too negative, and they're wild in their mood swings. Watch it. The sanguine husband is usually too superficial and distracted by other things. He's always running here and there, and he's always occupied with his little interests. He's got to watch that. And he also must guard against being too superficial so that he's not as sensitive as he should be. The phlegmatic husband, yes, is usually too uncommunicative. He doesn't know how to talk to his wife because he doesn't know how to talk to anyone is problem one. Second reason, he doesn't think he needs to talk to anyone, nor does he need to talk to his wife. He lives in his shell. 
He's an island. He's a rock. Why can't my wife be one? I'm rather content living that way. Because your wife will starve if you're a phlegmatic husband. The most frustrated women in the world are the women married to phlegmatic husbands. Because the phlegmatic by nature, given the nature of the job of being a husband, is the farthest from filling the bill if he lets his natural temperament run his life. He doesn't communicate with his wife. He lives in his own little world. She doesn't know what's going on inside of him. She doesn't know what his hopes are, his fears are, his problems are. He just keeps everything inside where he's nice and safe and cozy. And that isn't how you run a marriage. A man is to live with his wife, share things with his wife. Remember the Bible describes a wife as thy companion. How can two walk together except they be agreed? And I ask, how can you be agreed unless you talk? The greatest problem in marriages is the lack of communication. The lack of communication between husbands and wives. And I'm talking to the husbands. Listen, if you're a phlegmatic, melancholy husband, the only time you're going to open your mouth is to criticize your wife. Just think about the combination. The phlegmatic doesn't talk. The melancholy has to criticize. So when the phlegmatic melancholy talks, it's criticism. Oh, I know there are exceptions. What's the general rule? What am I warning you against? The choleric melancholy husband? Let's leave that one. <laughs> the phlegmatic choleric husband? When he does talk, he'll blow over the top. The phlegmatic choleric, remember, is two opposites. He's quiet, sulks, keeps in his own little world, may stay there a week, may stay there a month, may stay there three months, but believe me, when he lets go, the whole world will know. Because the choleric part of him just erupts, and then it's a blow-off, and everyone suffers. The choleric melancholy is by far the most critical, demanding, insensitive, negative combination that there can be. We need to guard against these things. Men, we're to dwell with them according to knowledge. And remember the great responsibility we have is managing we have is managing our wives. Getting started is not a gradual change in conduct. I'm not preaching tonight for over the next two years you to get better at being husbands. I'm talking about an act of your will tonight, just like the women did several weeks ago. If you believe the scriptures and what God has said is true. Thank God for the woman he gave you. Remember, you chose her. And build her up. Make her everything she can be. Listen, I want to see the men in this church wanting to make their wives greater than any other woman in this congregation. Wanting to match the virtuous woman. A woman who doesn't have any price because her value is far above rubies. Wouldn't that be great? I was thinking I might get applause from the women. But if the men would give themselves for their wives to make them great and to be burdened from tonight forward with this commitment, and to thank God for the woman you have. You have her. You're not getting rid of her. Love her and build her up and make her great if she needs some help. We need help as a church, and Christ makes sure he gives us everything we need through his spirit to be what he wants. Make her everything she should be. Confess to God and your wife any lack of patience, any lack of tenderness, any lack of communication, I haven't been very open. I don't talk to you much. I don't share my feelings with you. 
confess it to God and confess it to your wife. Remember that your wife receives reassurance for living from your verbal praise. You are God's ambassador to her. Tell her that she's doing a good job serving God by serving you. Your wife craves public and private affection and praise. Love her and give it. I want to see the men loving their wives in public, and I want you to see me praising and showing more affection to my wife in public. She may not respond immediately. You men don't expect miracles the first night you go home from trying this. You may have hardened her. It may take you a while. But knowing most of the women in this church, if you do it properly, it won't take more than a few days. Start tonight. Lead her. Teach her. Defend her. Praise her. Honor her. Talk to her. And love her. Husbands, love your wives. May God bless us to maximize our marriages.